0: Thank you. All right, anyone else? Okay. Your dog ate your homework. I've heard it before. We're going to get to those in just a few minutes. But uh, for those of you who didn't take the written exam, I have a little oral quiz for you. And uh, it's based on our passage of scripture. We are uh, doing a series entitled Improving Our God Esteem. And we're focused on Isaiah chapter 40. And the question is, who has understood the spirit of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor whom did the lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way who has who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding isaiah 40 verses 13 and 14 let's pray father we thank you that uh, You are a God who is far greater than anything we could ever imagine. In fact, there's no words that we can use to exaggerate how great you are. There are no superlatives that could capture your essence. So whatever we say, you are far greater than that. And thank you that today we can come and Just experience more of that, because we do want to know more of your love and more of your power in our lives. And may you manifest that as we uh, look at your word today, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, who has understood the spirit of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? Do you know the answer? Time's up. How many of you said Alan Dershowitz? Give yourself 10 points. The correct answer is Alan Dershowitz. Dershowitz was a Harvard professor of law who appeared on TV during the Clinton Lewinsky scandal. And he gave his legal opinion about presidential impeachments. His insights were brilliant, provocative, and entertaining. Now, when that controversy burned itself out, Dershowitz decided to turn his attention from the President of the United States to the Commander-in-Chief of the universe. So in 2000, he published a book entitled The Genesis of Justice, 10 Stories of Biblical Injustice That Led to the Ten Commandments and Modern Law. And in that book, Dershowitz exposed the mistakes that God had made early in his career. He claimed that Genesis is a documentation of how an inexperienced God tried to deal with the moral complexities of a fallen world. It was a time when he either overreacted as in the flood or defaulted to negligence as in the first murder case. Guilty of an aggravated felony, Cain didn't go directly to jail. He entered the witness protection program. That can't be right. Well, after centuries of inconsistency and injustice, God finally figures it out and publishes the Ten Commandments. And we all lived happily ever after. Who has understood the spirit of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? The question is, does God know what he's doing? The future generation that Isaiah was writing to could have hired Dertshevitz to uh, sue God for malpractice. How could God let Jerusalem be destroyed by the evil empire of Babylon? They were worse than ISIS. How could he let the temple be desecrated? The fall of Jerusalem was a huge theological problem for those who believed in the sovereignty of God. That dramatic disaster severely damaged Jehovah's reputation. To the media and the public, it looked like Bel and Nebu had decisively defeated Israel's God. How could he let that happen? Did God know what he was doing? Well, that's the question Isaiah addresses here in chapter 40. Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Maybe he should have had a focus group to provide some constructive feedback before he let all hell break loose. Often it helps to get some advice. We know that when a prime minister is elected in Canada, their administration is not a one-man show. They have to delegate authority to cabinet ministers who will specialize in specific portfolios like defense and finance. The US president hires experts to serve as Secretary of Homeland Security or Secretary of State. They're surrounded by economic advisors, business lobbyists, environmental consultants. And it has to be very complicated being caught in the crossfire of all these opinions and contradictions. Well, our Creator's administration is much simpler. He does get a lot of advice, but God already knows what is best. He doesn't need anyone to brief him about the latest developments in science or the newest discoveries in a certain field. He doesn't need any lifelines. And yet, when you listen to the prayers of God's people, now these are not your prayers, they're somebody else's. It it sounds like they're trying to sometimes instruct God or enlighten him. We point out what he needs to do to solve our problem, just in case he can't figure that out for himself. I do that all the time. And I figure if if God has to manage an entire universe, isn't it possible that he missed something? I, on the other hand, have had a lot more time to think about my problems. So here is my expert opinion. Who has taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Does God know what he's doing? Well, let's rephrase the question. Let's turn it into how great is our God? Verse 21. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. In spite of the rumors you may have heard, the Bible does not teach that the earth is flat. This sounds like a view from the space station. Isaiah tells us that God has the best seat in the house. And from his vantage point, he sees everything. Nothing is hidden from his sight. He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. We are a bunch of grasshoppers, jumping around from one weed to another, So our perspective is extremely limited. We're very short-sighted. How could we dare to correct God or try to change his mind? Even the smartest grasshopper in the world couldn't become the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture. That's preposterous. And yet there's all these intellectual insects trying to tell the Creator how to run the universe. Are you serious? Verse 25, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. That's the problem we've been encountering over and over again. We underestimate God and overestimate ourselves. We talk to him like like he's a colleague, just one of the guys. We forget that we're a bunch of grasshoppers. How dare we question God? And yet it happens all the time. We see this in the Gospels. Remember how Martha, Martha, inflated with indignation, confronted Jesus and scolded him. Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Come on, man. Who has instructed him as his counselor? And what about Simon Peter, who felt compelled to talk some sense into Jesus after he had told his disciples that he must suffer many things and be killed. Well, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Peter knew better. There's no way. What Peter said was actually logically and grammatically impossible. You can't say, No, Lord, no way. You either say Lord or you say no. You can't say both. If you say no, then he's not your Lord. Who are we to question God as if we are his equal? To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Says the Holy One. Verse 26 says, Lift your eyes, lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name, because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. The question is, how great is our God? Well, Isaiah says he brings out the starry host and calls them each by name. Are we in the same league as that God? How many stars can you name? Let's find out what our panel of experts came up with. I asked them to write down the names of all the stars that they know. Here we have somebody called Ray. He came up with 24 names. Although I don't think Pluto is a star... It's not even a planet anymore. So neither can I accept goofy, dopey, or sneezy. (laughs) And here is Olivier. He came up with 18. But, uh, wait a minute, Comet, Cupid, Donner, Blitzen. Weren't those reindeer? And finally... Was this Karen? Debbie. Debbie. Okay, Debbie has a number of names here. Looks pretty good. George Clooney. You can, you can have a star named after you, so maybe that's what happened. It's an impressive list, but Twinkle Twinkle is not the name of a little star. I'm sorry, I can't <laughs> accept that. But that is, uh, that's pretty good. That's way better than I would have done. Isaiah says he brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls them each by name. Now, just think about that. Just try to wrap your mind around it. God has given names to every star. And this is not like uh, former heavyweight boxing champion George Foreman, who had five sons, and he called each of them George. Simplifies things, right? Well, God is not like that. He has given each, name a, each star a unique name. And it sounds like a roll, roll call. Polaris, present. Alpha Centauri, present. Tatooine. That's, that's another planet. So how many stars are we talking about? Well, some years ago, scientists estimated that there were 40 sextillion stars. 40 sextillion. With those signs, everything's about sex. I don't know why it is, but... 40 sextillion. That's 40 with 21 zeros after it. Here's how a mathematician figured out what that looks like. Let's say we listed the names of those stars in books the size of our Bible. You could probably get about a half million names in one of these books. And Then we would need to build libraries to store these books. Let's say each library had the capacity to hold a million books like this. That would be larger than the Calgary Central Library. The Calgary Public Library System has 1.7 million books spread out over 18 branches. So we would need libraries that could hold a million books. How many libraries would we need to contain all the books that contain the names of the stars in the universe? Would we need 100,000 libraries each? with a million books, each containing the name of a half a million stars? Would we need a million libraries? Who will give me two million? Do I hear three? How about a hundred million libraries, each containing a million books, each book with a name of half a million stars? What about a hundred million libraries? How about one billion? How about ten billion? The correct answer is you would need 80 Billion libraries. Each library would contain a million books. Each book would contain the name of a half a million stars. That's what we're talking about when we say God has given names to every single star. What kind of an IQ is that? You can't even measure it. That's why theologians call it omniscience. God knows everything. He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. I don't even know the names of all the people on my block. Do you know the name of everybody in this church? No. Probably not. Are we in the same league as God? So why do we think we can give him advice? Why do I think I might be able to instruct him or enlighten him? Is there anything more absurd? It's a wonder that God even listens to us grasshoppers. And not only has God named every star in the heavens, it says, because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. God created all the stars and planets and the solar systems and galaxies, and he controls them. The universe is owned and operated by God. But does God know each one of us personally? I mean, there's over 7 billion of us. How could he know each of us personally? Well, 7 billion, that's easy, right? When you look at all the stars he knows, 7 billion is nothing. He knows our names and he knows our needs and he offers us new life. You see, each and every one of us desperately needs something that puts us in our place so that we do not overestimate ourselves. We need a reality check. And that's one of the reasons, I think, why God created this infinite universe to provide some scale for our ego, to remind us that we're insignificant grasshoppers. We looked at the verse in Psalm 8 last week when David said, When I consider your heavens, the moon and the stars that you've set into place, what is man? That you're mindful of him. Why do you even notice us? That feeling of insignificance is where we have to start if we are ever to have a meaningful and reverent relationship with God. The problem is, that so many of us come into the Christian life with a whole luggage cart full of carry-on bags. We come in with all of our opinions and preferences, and we think we can dictate terms. Daily bread, well, I'll need gluten-free. Trespasses, well, not on weekends. Deliver us from evil, don't call me, I'll call you. Thy will be done, unless I did it my way. We have all these personal preferences. We come in with our expectations. We bring in our oversized egos and our excuses and our sense of entitlement. And then we spend the next 10 years arguing with God until we finally get it. We do not dictate the terms of our salvation. We do not un- instruct God. We do not teach him the right way. We are so insignificant in and of ourselves. And the only thing that makes us important is God's great love for us. Without that, we are nothing. Without that, we have no hope and no future. That's exactly what the Hebrews were struggling with after the Babylonians had destroyed Jerusalem. It was the most devastating experience In the entire Old Testament era. They were absolutely humiliated. Which means. That they were very close to finding hope. Because all you have to do. Is remove your ego from humiliation. And it turns into. Humility. And that's healthy. And that sends you in the direction of hope. They had to be put in their place. The Hebrews had become too proud. Irreverence was rampant. So the Babylonian captivity was a reality check. It was time for a reboot. It was time for them to answer a skill testing question How great is our God? In Babylon, the Hebrews felt very insignificant. But that's how you start over. That's the only place where a new beginning is even possible. We are so insignificant in and of ourselves. The only thing that makes us important is God's love for us. And the good news is is that his love will never change. So when life falls apart, when you encounter an overwhelming crisis, when you're facing a hopeless situation, the only question you need to ask at that point is how great is our God? If we can't measure the height of the Himalayas with a 12-inch ruler, how much less Can we comprehend God's greatness with our limited human understanding, with our puny 199 IQ? We can't. But what we can do is know that God is aware. God knows everything. He knows what's happening in our lives and he understands what it's doing to us. Look at verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Have you ever felt like that? Of course. I've been there many times. But according to the Bible, God never is unaware of what's happening in our lives. We're never outside his coverage area. When we pray, we're never out of range so that our signal is searching, searching, searching. Was God able to hear the prayers of his people in Babylon? Of course. And not only that, he already had a plan in place to give them hope and a future. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my cause is disregarded by God? That's why the Israel, Israel, Israelis are there today. Because God has never given up on them. I mean, look at the pyramids. The pyramids are still standing, but the pharaohs are gone. God had no plan for the pharaohs, so they've never recovered. But those Hebrews, they're still in business after 4,000 years. And they really know their business. Every time I see a picture of Jerusalem... I'm reminded that if God has a a plan, he never, ever gives up on it. God does not give up on us because he who began the good work in you will continue it until it's complete. You see, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, you matter to God. And once God fixes his love on you, There's absolutely nothing you can do about it. Not even a hopeless situation can prevent him from keeping his promises. That's why Paul says in Romans 8.31, If God is for us, who can be against us? And when I see the stars, I'm reminded that God is aware of everything that happens in our lives. Every detail, every difficulty... In fact, he knows us better than we know ourselves. Did you know that God loves you so much that he can't take his eyes off of you? That's how much he loves you. And it's that love that gives us a solid hope that will not disappoint. So, people, don't Let your heart get troubled. If you're afraid of the future, if you're facing a hopeless situation, that's the time you'll have the opportunity to answer the most important question of all How great is our God? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that your greatness is so clearly outlined in your word. Thank you that uh, we have the rest of our lives to devote to discovering more and more of that greatness. What a wonderful thing that is to just have the opportunity to enter into a greater understanding of who you are, to raise our God esteem. That's the thing we need most in our lives. We don't need to try to figure out how great we are. We need to figure out how great you are. Father, forgive us insignificant grasshoppers for overestimating ourselves and sometimes underestimating you. May we not do that. Lord, thank you that uh, you are at work. The one who created those all those stars and holds our whole universe together certainly is able to deal with the circumstances and details of our life. We totally trust you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. How about we all stand and sing this last song?